stay fly, stay fly. You have to understand, Virginia passed a law in the early uh, 1800s that said if you were recently free, that you had a year to get out of the state. And if you didn't, you would become a slave again. Eighth of the size that it originally was, so it used to be enormous. And that's why Nat Turner tried to escape and make his way to the Dismal Swamp, because it really was not that far from Southampton County. You're listening to The Fly Guy Show. They do everything on the fly and in such a fly manner. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. They call that fly. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. <laughs> hey, this is Larry Thomas here on the Bold School Podcast. You're listening to Psycho Vaughner's Fly Guy Podcast. Support, like, subscribe, and share. He's saying some good things. Share it. Don't keep it to yourself. Hello, I'm Cassandra Newby-Alexander, and I'd like to welcome you to my presentation on the Underground Railroad in Hampton Roads and those freedom seekers who sought freedom and liberty through the Underground Railroad. One of the most exciting things is to talk about the Underground Railroad, in part because it is still a work in progress, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I want to begin with one of the numerous stories that I've uncovered as I have done work on the Underground Railroad. And one of them is the story of Isaac Foreman, William Davis, and Willis Reddick. Now, these three men escaped in 1853. Hello. I'm Cassandra Newby-Alexander, and I'd like to welcome you to my presentation on the Underground Railroad in Hampton Roads and those freedom seekers who sought freedom and liberty through the Underground Railroad. One of the most exciting things is to talk about the Underground Railroad in part because it is still a work in progress, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I want to begin with one of the numerous stories that I've uncovered as I have done work on the Underground Railroad. And one of them is the story of Isaac Foreman, William Davis, and Willis Reddick. Now, these three men escaped in 1853 aboard one of the steamships that frequented the waterways in Hampton Roads. In fact, Norfolk in particular was the center of activities of the Underground Railroad. And that's because hundreds of ships every single year plied the waterways and they went back and forth from Richmond to Norfolk. And Norfolk, of course, would go to Philadelphia with the steamships. It would also go to Boston. But there were also hundreds and hundreds of schooners that went back and forth, not only to those locations, but especially to New Bedford, Massachusetts, as well as to Delaware. And so this was the hub of so much maritime industry. And in fact, for those who may not know, Norfolk was designated by King Charles of England in 1680 to be the port of Virginia. And that's why so much maritime activity happened here, both in terms of the domestic slave trade with the majority of people in Virginia leaving from the Norfolk port and going to Charleston and to New Orleans uh, to be sold as property to other people but it was also the primary departure point for people headed to points north seeking freedom, both in this country and northern cities like Philadelphia, New Bedford, Boston, Syracuse, and other places, but also going to Canada, whether it was to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and that area, or whether it was to the Ontario province, especially to the big city, Toronto, which was, of course, the capital for uh, even in that time period that we're talking about. And that's any time between 1830 and 1860. But back to this story. So I wanted to read you an excerpt 
from a section in William Still's book on the Underground Railroad. And William Still, I'll tell you about him a little bit, I'll tell you a little bit more about him shortly. But William Still was a station master on the Underground Railroad, and he was in Philadelphia. And what he wrote was the following. These passengers, meaning Isaac Foreman, William Davis, and Willis Reddick, all arrived together, concealed per steamship city of Richmond, December 1853. Isaac Foreman, the youngest of the party, 23 years of age and a dark mulatto, would be considered by a Southerner capable of judging as very likely. He fled from a widow by the name of Mrs. Sanders. He stated that he had a wife living in Richmond and that she was confined the morning he took the Underground Railroad. Of course, he could not see her. The privilege of living in Richmond with his wife had been denied him. Thus fearing to render her unhappy, he was obliged to conceal from her his intention to escape. Now we know that the three men left aboard a steamship, the city of Richmond, that looked very similar to this ship the steamship Augusta. And I wanted to show you this picture so that you had an idea of what the steamship looked like. Now, of course, a steamship meant it was fueled by either wood or coal. And so there was a huge boiler room and above that boiler room was a compartment that was usually used to put anybody who was escaping in that compartment. Often it was a um, what we call a conductor or someone who simply worked as an agent with the Underground Railroad. Now on the city of Richmond, there was a young man by the name of John Minkins. He was a free black from Norfolk and he reportedly helped hundreds of people throughout this region of, of not only Hampton Roads, but as far north as Richmond. Uh, leave aboard that particular steamship and eventually he became a schooner captain continuing his activities helping freedom seekers find freedom in the north so it was this kind of steamship on which the three men escaped now the question is who were these men and why did they escape well i told you a little bit in this excerpt about isaac foreman but let me tell you a little bit more so isaac foreman actually worked aboard the augusta and this steamship went back and forth between norfolk and richmond and then of course it would go to philadelphia and so it wasn't unusual for these steamships to actually hire out enslaved men to work aboard the ships. In fact, in the South, most of the industries uh, hired out people who were enslaved to work in that industry, whether it was hotels, taverns, uh, along the, the docks as, as uh, loaders and unloaders, um, seamen aboard ships, uh, those who helped to ferry people back and forth between the trains and the ships and the hotels and all of that. Um, ferries, uh, African Americans were a part of and integrated fully into the industries in the South. And of course, in Richmond, where you had the Tredegar Ironworks factory or um, anywhere else where you had uh, sawmills, uh, tobacco factories and so forth, African-Americans worked in those industries. Tredegar Ironworks factory actually owned close to 100 enslaved people. And so it was not unusual to see African-Americans aboard these ships working. And so what this did was it created a security issue for Virginia. In fact, there were a number of lawmakers who began to articulate their their high level of concern by the 1850s when it seems that the Underground Railroad Network was helping hundreds and hundreds of people escape, which meant that millions of dollars was being lost to the slaveholders throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so in this in the case of Isaac Foreman, he was going back and forth between Richmond and Norfolk. 
And, um, and that's how he met his wife. She also was enslaved. And so it was with the consent of his owner or the ship's captain and her owner as to how much he would see his wife. And so what he did was he uh, contacted he, um, uh, one of the uh, one of the stewards, John Minkins, uh, who was also working on a similar ship, and he told him he wanted to escape. And part of the reason was because he did not want to see uh, either his wife or any future children be sold into slavery. He could not fathom uh, being able to live with that. And he thought it would be easier to escape. And But once he reached to uh, Philadelphia first, meeting William Still, and then ended up uh, going up to Toronto along with the other two men, he found that he couldn't live without his wife. In fact, I wanted to read you just a little bit of a letter that he wrote to his wife. And it was William Still who um, actually got the letters to his wife. And that's because there was this incredible network that was there. And so while he was waiting to hear back from William Still and possibly his wife, he wrote, he, he got a job in a hotel and this is the hotel that he worked in it was called the russell hotel it was one of the most famous popular hotels in toronto so he was right in the mix of of the main operations in toronto and so he wrote to william still and as i said hoping to uh, get his letters to his wife and he actually fell into a deep depression and he wrote that he was quote very gloomy in his heart his heart was almost breaking about his wife he said my soul is vexed my troubles are inexpressible I, I often feel as if I were willing to die I must see my wife in short if not I will die. What would I not give no tongue can utter just to gaze on her sweet lips one moment, I would be willing to die the next. I am determined to see her sometime or the other. Well, as it turns out with some of my research, I found out that he did indeed see his wife. In fact, his letters got to her and he had to wait a little bit because she did actually get pregnant or she was pregnant when he left. It doesn't seem as if the child survived, um, but she was able to get to Canada and they had additional children. And we see them in the records in which they lived um, uh, until what they call a ripe old age, which was in the latter part of their 60s. They lived a life. He, he actually opened up several businesses. They had, as I said, several children. And he worked to help other people settle, who were freedom seekers, settle in Toronto and in the areas around. Now, the other men, uh, I mentioned uh, William, and I also mentioned Willis. They also tried to get their wives out because both of them were about to be sold into slavery. And that seems to be what motivated those two people. They thought if I if I escaped myself, then I could from my vantage point being free or at least living as a free person, I could perhaps exert some influence to get my family out. What we don't know is whether or not they ever succeeded. But I will say that we're continuing to check the records and see if we can locate these others. But there was another man, interestingly, James Foreman. He was the brother, the younger brother of Isaac Foreman. And we know that he too escaped. And he wrote this letter that you see in 1856 to William Still. 
and I wanted to read you this. He says, sir, and, and I hope you see, these were enslaved people who knew how to read and write. We know, in fact, in Norfolk, that Norfolk, the, the Norfolk officials actually passed an ordinance to demand that the postmaster general stop delivering abolitionist newspapers to the enslaved population in the 1840s. And so that surprised me on two counts. First of all, that they knew what was happening and that the postmaster had actually delivered abolitionist newspapers to enslaved people. Who would have thought? These people knew how to read and write. And that was also a security threat because some of them were able to write passes for themselves. So he says, I take pen in hand to write you these few lines to let you know that I am I am well at present and hope these few lines may find you the same. Now you'll notice that there are a few words that are misspelled, but that was very typical of this time period. Sir, my object in writing to you is that I, that I expect a young lady by the name of Miss Mariah Moore from Norfolk, Virginia. She will leave Norfolk on the 13th of this month in the steamship Virginia for Philadelphia. You will oblige me very much by seeing her safely on the train of cars that leaves Philadelphia for the suspension bridge, Niagara Falls. Please to tell the lady to telegraph to me what time she will leave Philadelphia so I may know what time to meet her at the suspension bridge. My brother Isaac Foreman send his love, also his family to you and your family. They are all well at present. Please to give my respects to Mr. Harry Londe, also Miss Margaret Cunningham, no more at present. Now, of course, we found out that these last two people that he's referencing, Mr. Harry Londe, is really Mr. Henry Lundy. And Miss Margaret Cunningham was Miss uh, Olgavy. And of course, it was Mary. Olgavy, who became Mary Levest. And both of those individuals were members of St. Patrick's Church, Catholic Church in Norfolk, that later would become St. Mary's Basilica. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a minute. Anyway, he says, when you telegraph to me, direct to the International Hotel in Niagara Falls, New York. Well, what we know is that Mariah was transported all the way to Niagara. And just like in a movie, the a week later, the two were married in an Anglican church in Canada. And of course, that's where they lived the rest of their lives. And so these stories are powerful. They are telling about the people who lived and died the people who risked everything for freedom. And so I, I wanted to kind of tell you a little bit to, to get you thinking about these individuals. In fact, one of those who escaped said that slavery was designed to break hearts and to tear out the soul. So what was the motivation for people leaving? Of course, the, the whole point was they were enslaved. But what motivated them to risk their lives? Because if they were caught, they might not be sold, but their family members might be sold or beaten or even killed. This fear of separation from family through sale or inheritance was a powerful motivator. And many thought that they could be in a position to leave if they got away themselves and they were able to use their connections to help get their family out. In fact, many of you have probably heard about Henry Brown, known as Henry Box Brown. He was a man who lived in Richmond and he hired out his own time, which allowed him to slowly raise enough money and he sought to purchase the freedom of his wife who was owned by someone else. And he raised enough money, negotiated with the owner uh, as to what he would take um, in exchange for her freedom. 
And when he gave him the money and he said, okay, so where are her free papers? The owner said, what money? You didn't pay me any money. And so the owner swindled him out of his money. And then he worked very, very hard to raise more money. And instead of going directly to the owner, he went to an attorney hoping that the attorney would uh, uh, proctor the sale. And then the attorney stole his money from him. He was in the process of raising money a third time when her when his wife's owner sold her away. And Henry Brown in in his account tells a story of how he held the hand of his wife as she was led off in a coffle gang to a sh- and boarded on a ship and he held her hand until they drove him away with whips. He was so despondent that he thought about killing himself for months. And finally, he contacted a white carpenter who constructed a box for him based on his specifications. And then he contacted a person who was involved in the Underground Railroad and arranged to have this box sealed and sent to the abolitionists led by uh, William Still in Philadelphia. And he carried with him a few instruments and a cup of water so that he could survive because, of course, the box could not have any holes in it. It couldn't have any way for somebody to look into that box to see that there was a human being in it. And he put in big, bold letters this side up with arrows pointing up. Well, he got in the box. They nailed him in. And he... He had an instrument to bore tiny air holes for himself. Why? Because he could suffocate after two days in this box. Of course, halfway through the journey, the box was moved to another ship and turned upside down. And so for the rest of the journey, he was for close to 24 hours upside down. When the ship reached Philadelphia and the abolitionists came to get the box, they did not open it up on the docks for two reasons. The first one is that they opened the box with all the potential slave catchers around. That person would have been caught. Secondly, because they had opened boxes like that previously, some of the people died. They either uh, starved to death or um, were without air or something else happened. And so they didn't want people to see that. And there's one picture that you see, uh, and the Library of Congress owns that picture, of, of supposedly Henry Box Brown jumping out of the box and you see some people gathered around the box. Well, the artist who did this rendering didn't know what William Still looked like and didn't know what Henry Brown looked like. And the only people he knew, or the only black person he knew because it was a white artist, was Frederick Douglass. And so you have this image of variations of Frederick Douglass, both as a person jumping out of the box and a person looking at supposedly Henry Brown jumping out of the box. So that's that tells you that separation from family was perhaps one of the strongest motivators of people who escaped. Another one was harsh treatment or their involvement in the Underground Railroad because you did have a number of conductors who were enslaved in the South um, who operated this Underground Railroad network who were found out and they had to flee. You also had the last two, and that is a desire for freedom and as, as well as the death of a slaveholder, which really meant that if their slaveholder died. Any agreements that were made were probably not respected. Um, And we also know that often the person would be sold away to someone else far away. Now, I wanted to show you this map because the way that we see today Virginia and especially Hampton Roads and this whole area along the eastern seaboard in Virginia is from the perspective of the roads. 
but we don't see it from the perspective of the waterways. And we don't understand really how intricate and impactful and powerful those waterways have been in the history of this region. Of course, in Hampton Roads, you can't drive more than a couple of miles without passing over uh, a bridge or driving over a bridge or going through a tunnel. Uh, And a lot of the roads, you're actually traveling over bridges, but it's built into the road. So you don't even know that you're driving over bridges. If you go to downtown Norfolk, half of downtown Norfolk used to be underwater. But now, of course, you only know that when it rains, because when it rains, it floods. And any place is flooding, that used to be actually either marshland or part of a river or creek. And so that's everywhere in Hampton Roads. And I also wanted to, if you look down here at the bottom, that's of course Norfolk. You see the perspective of the Dismal Swamp and how close it was. In fact, today the Dismal Swamp is only maybe about an eighth of the size that it originally was. So it used to be enormous. And that's why Nat Turner tried to escape and make his way to the Dismal Swamp because it really was not that far from Southampton County. You also see the importance and the length of the James River and how all the waterways pour out to this key point where Norfolk and Hampton are separated. That waterway that connects the two, that waterway that's the opening to the Norfolk Naval Station, that waterway is called the Hampton Roads because that name, Hampton Roads, means that all of the rivers and the waterways connect at that point before it bottoms out to the Chesapeake Bay, which of course flows into the Atlantic Ocean. So that's just a little history about the area. Now, uh, let me back up for just a minute and kind of give you a little perspective. We know that there are a lot. There have been a lot of stories about how all oh, slavery was dying out. You know, so eventually you know, there was no need for a civil war. There was no need for any of these things because slavery was dying out. There were fewer slaveholders. Well, no, that's not true at all. There were fewer slaveholders, but they were owning more slaves. What you started to see was the emergence of corporate slavery, where there were people who owned 4,000, 5,000, 10,000, 30,000 enslaved people. And that was scattered throughout the western part of the South. So when we talk about the emergence, the invention of the cotton gin, which made cotton a very important commodity for the um, uh, for the, for the United States, that cotton gin enabled poorer whites, middle class whites, to become wealthy because all they needed was one enslaved man, and they could very quickly become middle middle and upper middle class because cotton was in such high demand. In fact, in 1860, cotton cotton production was the most valuable thing that America produced. America produced seven-eighths of the world's cotton production. Let me repeat that. Seven-eighths of the world's cotton production. The institution of slavery, the value of the people who were forced to be a part of that, the products they produced was more valuable in America than all of America's other industries combined. And so when we talk about the institution of slavery, the people who were involved, that they themselves were enslaved, and the products that they produced, that was America's big business. And in Virginia, where it wasn't cotton that was king, it was tobacco that was king. But in Hampton Roads... Tobacco was not king. What was king was human trafficking. The sale and the transportation of those who were sold into slavery, that was Virginia's big business. 
so we know that there were lots of of uh, of uh, articles and ads that came out even in the colonial period advertising uh, for runaways. Most of the runaways in the 18th century didn't run away out of the state. Typically, un- unless it was borderline where where um, Eastern North Carolina met the Hampton Roads area. But other than that, most people just simply tried to run away to cities um, or to, to larger towns. And so you saw a lot of ads saying that people were running away to Norfolk uh, or people were running away to Richmond or they were running away to Williamsburg because they could disappear in a more cosmopolitan environment. And in Norfolk, of course, you also had a lot of what they call blackjacks. And these were seamen. These were men who worked, African-American men who worked aboard ships. Some of them were simply uh, men of African descent because they worked aboard ships uh, that were British ships, uh, that were ships from one of the West Indian islands, Jamaica, Barbados, you know, or coming from Cuba. So they worked aboard these ships. Um, and so some of these individuals, men especially, who escaped, tried to escape and get a job as a seaman aboard one of these vessels. And that's why they were running away. But of course, by the time we got into the 19th century, so the 1800s, that's when many people started moving out of the area and started going northward. And this was especially because a lot of the northern states began to pass laws eliminating slavery in their territories. So let's look at the concentrations of blacks. And and this will be a very telling story because it really shows how the black population who were enslaved were concentrated in our area and along this eastern seaboard, that waterway system that I told you about. But they were expanding westward as well, and they were expanding southward. So we see all the way, especially from Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and northern Georgia, there were concentrations along the eastern seaboard. In Virginia in particular, you see where those concentrations were. So you see, for example, right there at the fall line where those little triangles are located, that's the beginning of the mountain range, uh, the Appalachian mountain range that runs all the way along the East Coast. We call in Virginia that mountain range the Blue Ridge Mountains. In New York, they call it the Poconos. In uh, uh, the Carolinas, they call it the Great Smokies. But it's the same uh, uh, chain of mountains. And of course, on the West Coast, they have the Rockies. So all of the fall line, they were the big producers of tobacco. We would see moving towards the waterways going east, there were areas that really were huge tobacco producers. Um, Chesterfield, Dinwiddie, that area, and of course, Essex, Caroline, especially, uh, Spotsylvania, but that area, Hanover, they were key tobacco empires. By the time you got to Southampton County, you started to see a little less tobacco production, some cotton production. But Norfolk didn't have any of that. So why was there a concentration? It was because of the maritime industry. The same thing is true of Gloucester. It wasn't because of any production. It was because of the maritime industry. That's why you have concentrations there. All right. So 1830 census. Look at how things have changed from 1790 to 1830. You not only see the population of Africans and African-Americans really expanding throughout the South, but you see a a lessening of the population of enslaved African-Americans in the North. And that's because those Northern states were passing laws eliminating slavery. And of course, all the, where you see this concentration in the New Orleans area, right there at the Mississippi River. A lot of people were being transported to Charleston on the East Coast, 
and of course to New Orleans, uh, right there on the Gulf Coast. But I want you to keep something in mind. Look at Virginia. That population density of, of African Americans did not change. Even though the majority of people being sent to the lower South were coming from Virginia. And so their, their population density had reached a point such that even though there were thousands who were being sold in the domestic slave trade, they were being replaced by thousands who were being born. And we would continue to see this all the way, of course, to East Texas. That's where you had the huge cotton plantations. And that helped to funnel millions of dollars into Texas. And if you know anything about American history and about the Texas annexation in 1850, this is why. It is because cotton production and the enslavement of African-Americans was something that was highly desired by the officials in this country. And they wanted that territory and they wanted the products that would come from having that territory a part of the United States. But you know, we also had problems because a lot of people were escaping and they were going north. And even in the 1830s, free blacks were the object of a lot of kidnapping. In fact, if you ever saw the film 12 Years a Slave or read the book 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northup was a free black from New York who was lured to uh, Washington, D.C. He was drugged and he woke up in a slave jail with all of his clothes removed and replaced with the clothing, like prison clothing of, of slaves. All the slaves wore a certain type of clothing. They, it was a certain color so that people could identify them wherever they were. They were America's prisoners, forever prisoners. And so these, and so he, he woke up in, in jail and, um, and he was transported to, to the New Orleans slave market, passing through the Norfolk station and going all the way there. And so the call, there was a clarion call to, by all the abolitionists warning, uh, especially free blacks, but also people who had escaped to freedom in the North that these slave hunters were coming to get them. And that's because of this new Fugitive Slave Act that was passed in 1850 that created a special court that would uh, try these cases uh, of those accused of being runaway slaves. The problem was that if you were black, you could not testify on your own behalf. You were denied that right because you were not really regarded as a citizen. It would take the 1857 uh, Dred Scott versus Sanford case for the Supreme Court to declare that black people are not citizens of this country because they're not human beings. And that case had to be, or that decision had to be reversed with an amendment called the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship, actually it restored citizenship to black people in this country. And so the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act also created the special court. Now, presumably because it was more paperwork involved, if you found a person guilty of being a fugitive slave, the judge was paid $10. But if he found that the person was not a fugitive slave, he was paid $5. And so this differential in pay resulted in abolitionists galvanizing themselves to ensure that people would not be identified as fugitive slaves. And you had actually a lot of um, states, especially Massachusetts, pass laws saying they were not going to cooperate with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Now, I wanted to just go back to Norfolk and show you this ad. And of course, it shows us this, you know, how every week in the newspaper, you have these steamships. They tell you where they're leaving, what time they're leaving, what day they're leaving, and where they're going. And so we can trace and compare 
the accounts that William Still was giving with this schedule. And it helps us to understand at least those who are leaving aboard the steamships. But you had many others who were leaving aboard schooners. And, and to just kind of give you some perspective, Higgins Wharf down at the bottom is where the steamships were docked. And Higgins Wharf is pretty much where the baseball stadium is located in Norfolk. So it's right off of Waterside Drive. It's actually on the older street called Water Street. Market Square, that's where Waterside is. And um, and Main Street. And that's the air. That was the center also of the black community. The Norfolk Ferry Dock, that's the same place that the ferry docks today. So if you go to Waterside and you want to go over to Portsmouth, that's the ferry. That's that's exactly where the ferry dock. And on the other side of Portsmouth on High Street and North Street, that's also where the ferry dock in Portsmouth. And so a lot of people who escaped through the Dismal Swamp and made their way to Portsmouth got aboard the ferry that was manned in some cases entirely by enslaved black men, made their way over to Norfolk and got aboard one of the ships and escaped. We also know that Scott's, Scott's and Tanner's Creek, so a lot of people actually got aboard schooners that were arranged for them and escaped there. But we're finding that also further inland, um, past Higgins Wharf, going, going towards St. Mary's Basilica today, which is off of Tidewater Drive, that is also where enslaved people got aboard schooners and left. And so again, to, as a reminder, this is an example of one of the other steamships, the Philadelphia, that plied the waterways in, uh, in and around this area. Now, I want to tell you one last story about these three people. Um, and Actually, it's, it's four people. So William and Charles Davis, brothers... And their sister was Clarissa Davis. And they were actually owned by different people. But they had arranged to escape aboard a schooner called the Ellen Barnes that went back and forth between Norfolk and New Bedford. But for whatever reason, Clarissa missed the ship. Her two brothers left reluctantly without her in 1854. And and she made it over to Norfolk and got together with two individuals, William Bagnall, who was a white man who worked as a conductor, and John Minkins, who was a steward aboard the city of Richmond, to help her to escape. And she talks about in her account how she hid for 75 days in a miserable coop and eventually uh, was able to get aboard the ship when there was a huge thunderstorm. And the two men that I mentioned helped to dress her as a man and got her aboard the ship. And she escaped and made her way to New Bedford. And that's where she laid. That's where she remained. <coughs> she and, and her brothers were members of the Colored Methodist Church in Portsmouth, a church that later became known as Emmanuel AME Church. And that church was actually known as a a magnet for people who wanted their freedom. And many people actually escaped from slavery who were members of that church. Another man who was a member of that church, he and his wife, Robert Irving. Robert later adopted the the alias of Sheridan Ford. And he lived in Portsmouth. Um, He and his father worked at the... um, at the Portsmouth Navy Hospital. He worked as in construction. Um, and we know where he probably lived, on Dinwiddie Street with his owner. Um, he was hired out. This is where he was hired out, he and his father. Uh, this is a picture of what the Naval Hospital looked like in the 1850s. He knew his his uh, uh, future wife, Julia Ann. They married in 1845. The person who married them was her owner, John Hodges. Um, and 
John Hodges actually performed the wedding ceremony in his house and allowed the two to live in the basement of his house. And that's where they they had their marriage supper. That's where they had their three kids. Uh, but according to the accounts, uh, the general and his wife worked uh, uh, Sheridan Ford's wife horribly. Um, and he, actually, he complained bitterly about her treatment. We know that uh, Sheridan Ford uh, had two very good friends, Charles Bracey, who was a free black, and David Johnson, who was enslaved, who kept him up and informed with everything. And this is a picture of the house in which they lived. And if you look at the bottom floor, that was the basement in which they lived. It's a private residence today. Well, Julia and Robert would have three children, three boys, Robert Jr., George, and Frank. Uh, Later on, Robert and George would move up to New York City and they would eventually die. Frank stayed in Portsmouth and uh, lived long enough to be reunited with his father. But let me tell you what happened. So in 1854, in November, his owner, Robert's owner was about to sell him. He heard about it and he escaped and he tried to secure the freedom of his wife and three children. But John Hodges, her owner, had heard about him escaping and he took Julia and the three children and locked them up in one of the slave jails in Norfolk. And Robert tried desperately for two months to try to get them out. But pretty soon he knew he was going to be uh, found out. And he got aboard the steamship with the help of John Minkins and went up to Philadelphia and made contact with William Still and then went to New Bedford, where numerous other Portsmouth natives were living um, under the guise of free people. And they all adopted aliases. Clarissa Davis was now known as Mary Armstead. Robert Irvin was now known as Sheridan Ford. But the 1855 yellow fever epidemic hit and John Hodges died and his descendants sold Julia and the three children to a relative in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And unfortunately, that, of course, resulted in him not knowing and Sheridan Ford not knowing what happened to his children. He tried desperately to find his wife and children. Eventually, he gave up in 1863, and he married Clarissa Davis. Two years later, he got word that his wife and three children were safe and had returned to Portsmouth, but it was too late. He was already married, and he and his new wife had two children. And of course, she, thinking she would never see her husband again, remarried as well. Well, Sheridan Ford visited Portsmouth twice after freedom, after the end of the Civil War. The second time he visited, it was in 1895. And he gave his son, he had done so well, he owned two houses. He had $1,200 in the bank, which is like almost $100,000 today. He He owned several businesses. And he gave each of his children a very expensive gold watch. And he told Frank, his son, take this. This is nothing common, meaning this is very expensive. But this is an indication that you will be one of my heirs when I die. And then he turned and what he said to his son, son, I can't come here anymore. It's too painful. And then he turns to his first wife, Julia, and he says to her, It's too painful when I look at you and my children and I realize the life that I lost, I can't come here. He said, had I not been forced to leave, we would have celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary this year. He left forever, going back to New Bedford, and two years later, he died. And so after he died and after Clarissa Davis died, Frank didn't hear anything about his inheritance. And so his two half-siblings 
refused to share the inheritance. And fortunately for us, he filed a lawsuit in Massachusetts and claimed he was one of the heirs to his father's estate. But the Massachusetts court ruled that because Massachusetts did not recognize slavery, then the marriage was not valid, and therefore he was not an heir. But this case gave us all of this information that I just gave you about Sheridan Ford and Julia Ann and Frank and Clarissa Davis. Otherwise, I would not have known that particular heartbreaking but very important story. And so historians love to find out more information. These are the two people that Clarissa Davis, now known as Mary, and Sheridan Ford had, uh, Leonard and Margaret. This is a, an image that um, gives you an idea of what Norfolk looked like in 1885. And so you can project back uh, 30 years and, and know that this is pretty much what it looked like at that time, minus some of the telephone wiring and so forth. But in this time period, this is what the wharves looked like. They were dirty. They were filthy. They were filled with all kinds of products. That's the site. So today, that's not what it looks like. Today, you see this wonderful baseball stadium and you see the train station. But at that time, it was a very busy uh, water wharf. But I wanted to, to tell you about this particular woman. She was a part of a group of people who were contacted by those who are living in John Hodge's house today. They tracked down the descendants of Frank Irving and had an opportunity to bring them to Portsmouth, to host them in their home and to have them visit Emmanuel AME Church, that same church that her ancestors worshiped in. And of course, this was their first time to learn about this incredible story of their ancestors. And so this is a picture of William Still, who wrote this incredible book called The Underground Railroad. He was one of the few station masters that not only collected all these stories and kept them, in fact, during the Civil War, he hid his accounts in a cemetery for fear that if the Confederates overran Philadelphia, they might find his work and they might be able to track down all the enslaved people and force them back into slavery. But he wrote all these accounts because one day when he was interviewing people who had come through his station, there was a young man who came from where his parents were from. He was actually born in a free state, but his parents had been enslaved and they escaped. And he found out that this young man was older than he was. And as he talked and talked and talked, he found out that this was his long lost brother who had been sold away before, just before his parents escaped. And they had been looking and looking and looking for him. And he realized that he had to do the same thing for other people that he was able to do for himself. And that is through his writings, he was hoping that people would reconnect. In the case of Sheridan Ford's family, it took almost 200 years for them to reconnect. But in the case of some of the other families, they reconnected shortly after the end of slavery. And of course, his account tells us that there were 763 freedom seekers who passed through his station between 1852 and 1859. And that was an incredible story to really learn about, about all these accounts. And so just looking at his account, these aren't all the people who escaped. This is just a sliver of the people who escaped. We know that 102 out of that 285 that he talks about, 102 came from Norfolk. Half that number came from Richmond and then fewer Petersburg, et cetera, et cetera. So Norfolk really was the hub just, just in looking at this account. Now, there were people who escaped on smaller ships like the skiff. Um, and in fact, one of the people, Robert Emerson, was the brother of Jeffrey Wilson, who wrote 
this important um, column in the Portsmouth Star called the Colored Notes. Jeffrey Wilson looks, if you look at a picture of him, he looks just like his owner. It looks like father and son, which from basically my research says that's a high probability it was. Robert Emerson eventually um, made it up to Toronto, Canada. And after the Civil War, he came back to this country, but he did not come back to Portsmouth. He ended up going to, um, um, to San Francisco, and he got a job with um, William Hearst, working on the newspaper uh, in San Francisco. And Jeffrey Wilson actually has some pictures showing him visiting his brother around the end of the 19th century. There were other people that I found who continued to live in Canada, such as Isabella Pugh and Stephanie Swan, but they all escaped aboard this tiny little ship. And we also know that there were efforts to find enslaved people. And if you go to downtown Norfolk and you go to Waterside, you will see the picture on a marker. And that event actually happened on that site. Alfred Fountain was a captain who built a secret compartment aboard his schooner, and he was able to secret 22 enslaved people away, even though there were um, accounts that he was involved with the Underground Railroad. And we know that there were night watchmen. There were constables who were constantly working as slave catchers. And so some of the people successfully escaped, but others were actually captured. And of course, I mentioned that the Dismal Swamp was an important route for a lot of people. Now, there were a handful of people who actually stayed inside the swamp, while the majority of people simply used it as a way to hide as they made their way slowly to the Norfolk Harbor via Portsmouth. Um, and if you're interested, please visit the Dismal Swamp to learn a lot more about these freedom seekers, as well as about the Maroons and the Maroon camps that are in the swamp that um, Dan Sayers, who's an archaeologist, has actually found at least 20 different Maroon communities within the swamps. Well, when they got to the north, there were many places, many of you have perhaps heard about all the white abolitionists who helped, but the reality is actually the opposite, that the majority of people who worked secretly to help escaped slaves, these freedom seekers, were free blacks in the north. And these free black communities of Philadelphia and, and in Chester County in Pennsylvania and in New York and Boston and New Bedford, these were the people who helped to give aid and comfort and security and protection to these enslaved people. Many of the white abolitionists risked their lives. Many of them raised money to help, but it was within the black community that these individuals found protection. And so I wanted you to see where New Bedford and where Boston was, you know, relative to each other. And of course, the easy way to connect these two was through the waterways. And New Bedford actually became the, the enslaved, enslaved person's haven um, because the people in New Bedford were kind of different. Unlike Boston that had a lot of people connected to the slave trade, New Bedford was a whaling town. And for whatever reason, the people in New Bedford did not like slavery. They protected the whites of that town, protected the enslaved population, and the enslaved population uh, or the people who were who had been enslaved, that population grew. And in fact, it was such a strong, powerful population that Frederick Douglass asked that the 54th Massachusetts Regiment be mustered in in New Bedford, Massachusetts, because he thought, who better to fight for freedom than the freedom seekers? And that's why New Bedford was chosen. And this is a image, it kind of, New Bedford also very much resembled 
the Norfolk Harbor in the way that the buildings were constructed and the numbers of ships that were coming and going. And so I want to just conclude um, my discussion, and I'm just going to slide past this by, by talking about some recent information that's been uncovered, and that is St. Mary's Basilica in Norfolk. And if you look at these images, they have recently, over the past year and a half, discovered there's a tunnel that was built, and the church, this new church that was built in 1858, was built on top of this tunnel and they made sure that the architecture of the church did not destroy the tunnel that they altered it to not destroy the tunnel and there there's nothing in the city records to show why that tunnel is there so it wasn't built by the city it was built by other people and we have found that um, those other people were connected to Haiti because St. Patrick's Church and then St. Mary's was primarily filled with people who had left from Haiti during the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s. And they, many of them are, began arriving in Norfolk in 18, excuse me, in 1792. And that included a woman by the name of Mary Ogilvie, who later married a man also from Haiti, although Mary was her only her father was from Haiti her mother was from Virginia her mother was a free black so was her father but Mary married a man who came from Haiti um and um and she was the one who actually got the plans for the USS Merrimack which became the CSS Virginia the first ironclad ship and she got those plans all the way to Washington, D.C., and to Gideon Wells, who's the Secretary of the Navy, to prove that, that the Confederates were indeed constructing a, uh, an ironclad vessel. And this is what helped to speed up the production of the USS Monitor. That and, and of course, we know that the famous ironclad battle happened right there at the Hampton Roads uh, in 1862. Well, Mary um, uh, purchased a young man from Haiti named Mark DeMorty for $350. And she kept him almost the age of 21 as a slave. Now, what's interesting is that there's no evidence that she held him officially, I mean, officially, yes, as a slave, but he was actually allowed considerable freedom. You have to understand, Virginia passed a law in the early uh, 1800s that said if you were recently free, that you had a year to get out of the state. And if you didn't, you would become a slave again. So it appears that she held him long enough so that he could be his own man. Well, during the time he was a teenager, he began to work with a man named Henry Lundy. Henry Lundy was a free black who helped hundreds of people escape from slavery. And so it appears that DeMorty, connected to the church, was working arm in arm with Lundy to help hundreds of people escape. And it appears that that tunnel was an important device that they used to help people escape. And here's a picture of DeMorty, who ended up having to flee Norfolk because he was associated with helping people escape and ended up being an important part of the abolitionist community in, um, in Boston. And so I want to conclude by inviting you to read my book, which is really only a brief account of some of these amazing stories of people who fled through the Underground Railroad with their hearts um, uh, wrapped around the idea of securing freedom, not only for themselves, but their families. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my story. Thank you. Well, uh, Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander, that was such an amazing presentation. Thank you so much for taking the time to film that for us. Thank you so much. Stay floss, 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 stay floss.
The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests, unless we say we agree, unless explicitly stated. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. Stay conscious. Stay fly. Hey.